And so, the latest journey out of lockdown begins. The First Minister is still being cautious, but at last counting the days until she can get her hair done. She's not the only one. battle is on for second place in the Holyrood election. Travel restrictions to ease. Don't stay at home, but do stay local. And back to the future. The Scottish Government is nationalising ScotRail. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Holyrood. I want people to know that the Scottish Labour Party I lead will always be on your side. I will seek to unite our country to focus on delivering a COVID recovery parliament so we can rebuild our country with a national recovery plan. Unity, not division. Recovery, not old arguments. Labour back on your side, not on the sidelines. Matin va, fiskama. Seven weeks to go, and the story of this election may not be the size of Nicola Sturgeon's government, but the rise of Anas Sarwar's Labour Party. He's leading Labour towards second place ahead of his ambition to become First Minister at the next election. Labour's been off the park for years. Much work has yet to be done regaining trust, but Anas Sawa has already taken Scottish Labour back into play. If you take the sporting metaphor further, Labour's got new balls. Today I'm directly answering the question, why vote Labour on May the 6th? Because Scottish Labour, under my leadership will make a national recovery our only priority. We can't rely on Boris Johnson's Tories to deliver a recovery that works for everyone. They are happy to return to the failed economic model pre-COVID. We can't rely on the SNP to prioritise recovery because they've already made clear they will prioritise a referendum this year. It's only by voting for us that you can guarantee that we have a parliament focused on recovery. If the SNP gets a majority at this election, we will be diverted by what divides us again. If the Tories remain second, they too will talk up that division as they are devoid of ideas and only know what they are against. They promise to be a strong opposition. Where is it? The truth is, Boris Johnson's Tories are responsible for so many of the divisions and inequalities in our society. Instead, you can vote for what our parliament should be for, a COVID recovery parliament where we work in the national interest. That's why voting Labour matters. If you want our country to focus on creating and protecting jobs, to deliver an education comeback plan, to restart and rebuild our NHS, to protect our economy and our planet, our people, the national recovery plan that Scotland needs, then we are on your side. Scottish Labour leader Anas Sarwar. Now the First Minister says it's time to unlock. We're on the pathway towards something like normality. It's been a year in the making. Here's Nicola Sturgeon. I can confirm, firstly, that we expect to lift the current stay-at-home rule on the 2nd of April. Initially, although we hope this will be for no more than three weeks, stay-at-home will be replaced by guidance to stay local. In other words, not to travel outside your own local authority area unless for an essential purpose. People will continue to be able to meet up outdoors, including in private gardens and groups of no more than four from two households. Our other changes in early April will take effect from Monday the 5th. 
On that day, we expect contact sports for 12 to 17-year-olds to resume. We also expect that from 5th April, more students, particularly in further education, will be allowed to return to on-campus learning. Colleges will prioritise those students whose return is essential, including those who are most at risk of not completing their courses. And that includes those who are taking qualifications in construction, engineering, hairdressing, beauty and related courses. We also expect to begin the phased reopening of non-essential retail on the 5th of April. Click and collect retail services will be permitted to reopen from that date, along with homeware stores and car showrooms and forecourts. And garden centres will also be able to reopen on the 5th of April, which I know is important as we head towards the summer period. And last, but for some of us definitely not least, we expect hairdressers and barber salons to reopen for appointments on the 5th of April as well. Opposition leaders have their own take on the route map. Conservative group leader at Holyrood, Ruth Davidson. Today's update, as briefed, has started to give some clarity as to when various sectors can reopen. Frankly, it's clarity they were calling for and expecting three weeks ago when the First Minister said she would reveal her roadmap out of the restrictions. But that notwithstanding... It will give much encouragement to those who are desperate to get back to work, shops to welcome customers and hairdressers to welcome clients. But a statement can be as instructive by what is not mentioned as much as the information that is. And we know there's a huge job to get public services affected by COVID back online, whether that's NHS testing and treatment, the backlog of court cases or support services for those with special needs. Presenting officer... For a week, beginning with International Women's Day and ending on Mothering Sunday, last week was a particularly tough week for women. The disappearance of Sarah Everard and the discovery of her body shocked us all. It led to an outpouring of stories from women across the country of times that they'd been attacked or intimidated, catcalled, flashed at, followed, stalked, abused or threatened. The First Minister recognises this and used her own social media channels to offer support. And of course she can't solve all these problems but she could offer specific action in specific areas to make things just a little better. The First Minister will have been as struck as I was this week by the number of women explaining how their horizons have narrowed during COVID. That basic pursuits that most men don't think twice about, like going for a walk or run or other outdoor exercise in the evening or after dark, simply isn't an option for them if they want to feel safe and stay safe. So I'm asking her to look again at moving up the reopening date of well-lit and well-supervised safe exercise spaces like gyms so that people across Scotland, but especially women, can get out of the house and do basic exercise without fear. Another improvement would be to reopen all scans and stages of pregnancy treatment to partners so that women aren't going through so much of the patient pathway alone. And further, the First Minister has previously talked of diagnostic testing restarting, but we know from recent data that urgent referrals for treatment of possible cervical cancer is down around half on rates for 2019. London is trialling at-home smears, so can the First Minister commit to looking at a similar catch-up scheme here? And finally, we've seen a rise in violent crime across Scotland, just at the time that the backlog of court cases has soared. Can we increase the number of High Court sittings and take the court on circuit so that those waiting for justice, particularly those having been subject to violent or sexual crime, can get that justice earlier. First Minister. 
Um, firstly, had I announced everything um, I've announced today three weeks ago, I would have been doing so without the confidence that we would have reached a stage of having suppressed the virus and vaccinated uh, enough people to make it safe. And what I've tried to do, and some people will agree, some people will disagree, from day one of this pandemic, literally every single day, is take balanced decisions that put the overall safety of the country first. And that is what I am going to continue to do each and every single day. That's more important than headline grabbing or doing things to make the lives of politicians easier, because my job is to protect, uh, as well as I can, the safety of the population at large. Um, and I would uh, repeat again that because of the cautious uh, approach we took coming out of lockdown uh, last year, we kept things open longer than was the case in other parts of the UK. And of course, we're coming out now of our uh, second national lockdown. Other parts of the UK are coming out of their third national lockdown. So these are decisions that are important to get uh, right. Opening up public services uh, that have had to be paused is a priority. And actually, it's because we give that priority, uh, schools being at the top of that list, that we have to be more cautious with opening some parts of our economy because we can't do everything when headroom to suppress the virus is so limited. So we have unapologetically and unashamedly prioritised the return of schools um, and getting the health service uh, back operating normally is uh, a real focus. Now, the Health Secretary and I had a roundtable discussion just yesterday with representatives from across the health service hearing directly from them about the priorities and the needs that they have. We've just established a new centre for sustainable uh, development in the National Health Service that is looking at in innovative ways at-home smears, for example, although I think we've got to be careful about exactly how we describe uh, certain things. But all of that is part of what we are now doing uh, to take forward uh, the sustainable recovery of the National Health Service, while also supporting the health service uh, to treat COVID patients for as long as that is necessary. On justice, uh, significant investment in justice, significant work uh, with the courts and tribunal service has meant that, again, creative and innovative ways were found uh, to keep court hearings and trials uh, going, although there has been an undeniable impact on that, and we will continue to bring those services back as safely as possible. Uh, with gyms, I uh, hope to see gyms open on the 26th of April for individual exercise. Uh, group exercise outdoors uh, so that people are not faced with having to do that on their own, and that's particularly important for women, particularly in current circumstances. Uh, we allowed that from last week to recognise the importance of that for people's physical and mental health. So none of this is easy. It will do nobody any favours for me to stand here and rush to do everything at once because it will set us back. What we are setting out is a sustainable and steady path out of lockdown uh, back to normality, and I believe it's one that the vast majority of people across the country will support. For Labour, Anas Sarwar says he wants this to be the last lockdown. The First Minister agrees, but says it's a lot harder to secure that than a soundbite. Steps to open our society and economy are welcome, particularly as they too impact on health and well-being, and I know that this will give much-needed hope to people across Scotland. And that's why we need to make sure that this is our last lockdown. In the past week, we have seen a rise in the number of cases and there are local areas where rates are still much higher than average. Whilst we want to see progress, we need to make sure that as restrictions are lifted, infection rates do not rise with them. Finally, reaching 400,000 vaccinations a week it will also be welcome. But last week, almost 420,000 gold standard PCR tests went unused. 
Will the First Minister commit to using these in our schools and workplaces as restrictions ease? Effective testing and tracing is what will stop us going back into another lockdown. We also welcome the commitment of additional funding for businesses, but the eligibility and the speed of dispersal is crucial. Does the First Minister recognise that it will take time for businesses to recover even after the restrictions are lifted and lockdown ends? And does she agree that transitional support must be made available over the longer term to avoid businesses having to close and people losing their jobs? First Minister. Well, firstly, all of us want this to be the last lockdown, but it is not uh, as easy as a politician simply saying that as a soundbite to, to make it happen. Uh, making sure this is the last lockdown involves taking careful, cautious and sensible decisions, uh, sometimes having to take unpopular decisions in order that we can make sure that our exit from this lockdown, even if it is a bit slower than we are all desperate for it to be, is a steady one and firmly in one direction and that we don't end up setting ourselves backwards. So that's what I am focused on and the government is focused on every single day. Um, in terms of testing, we are using lateral flow devices in schools and increasingly in workplaces as well because they are quicker uh, to get test results. There is, uh, you know... No, no, no purpose in using PCR for uh, asymptomatic testing, but it takes longer to get the results. So we are using lateral flow testing. Uh, and if those tests are positive, they then get confirmed uh, or otherwise uh, by PCR testing. Uh, the reduction in the use of PCR testing is actually because prevalence of the virus is falling, uh, because PCR testing has uh, been prioritised for people with symptoms of COVID, because that's what is really important. But we will continue to use all of our testing capacity which is much more varied now than it has been before as effectively as possible. And we're using testing in many more settings uh, than was the case previously. Um, on business support, what I've set out today is equivalent uh, for uh, retail, eligible retail businesses to about three months additional support in, in terms of the start-up grant, I think for eligible hospitality and leisure businesses to about six months support. So it will provide additional support even after businesses start to reopen and is more expansive than what we had previously planned. There will continue to be a need for business support in the medium term. We have always recognised that, which is why we have already made the commitment to 100% rates relief for the worst hit sectors for the entirety of the next financial year. And through uh, the various different mechanisms we have, we will continue to appropriately support business as they get back to trading and back, hopefully, to making profits. Uh, and that's, again, to end on this point. That's why it's so important we get these decisions right so that when businesses start to reopen this time, they stay open um, and can get back to normal, just like we all want to do. Scottish Lib Dem leader Willie Rennie says the First Minister provided many dates but little data. I'm sure people will feel a little bit of hope today. Their sacrifices and the brilliance of the vaccine scientists means that our liberty may return soon. And the dark cloud hanging over people struggling with their mental health might start to clear as well. So we must have the services ready to help them. The First Minister has been insistent that decisions on easing will be based on data not dates. Yet the statement today has quite a few dates, but very little data. When will we see the indicators that will allow people to understand when they will be moving from one level to the next in their area? Can the First Minister be clearer about the indicators and the data? First Minister. Well, 
people, I think, want some clarity about the indicative timeline, which we're trying to give them. All of this is predicated, though, on the data continuing to go in the right direction. If the data starts to go wildly in the wrong direction, uh, then clearly all bets are off. And that's why it's so important for all of us to continue to convey those messages of discipline and continuing to stick with it for uh, a little bit longer. Um, in terms of the move uh, down from level four for all of mainland Scotland and some parts of our island communities, we want to try to do that as one country because that will allow us to lift travel restrictions. Um, and even although some parts of the country are at lower levels of prevalence right now, uh, it, because we are not yet at a critical point in terms of vaccination, it would still be very risky to, it, to lift those restrictions more quickly in those parts of the country. Um, when we uh, have done that, if there are outbreaks or variable transmission across the country, we will have the option of using the levels and we will publish the, uh, shortly the, the latest indicators that we would intend to use. As I had to say repeatedly before, it is not an exact science. But at the moment, for the whole country, it's about getting uh, the virus as low as possible and keeping it there, recognising that as we start to ease, as I said before, it's not neutral. So it's a combination of all of this that we need to keep in mind as we try to navigate our way through these next few weeks. For the Scottish Greens, Alison Johnson is concerned about plans to support students returning to college and university campus. Uh, the fact that we're in a position to start planning reopening things and getting our lives back will be most welcome for everyone. And as always, the Scottish Greens support a cautious approach, but the First Minister flagged an increase in daily cases compared to last week, which is concerning. And there have been reports of an increase in cases linked to the unsafe gatherings of football fans in Glasgow. So I'd like to know if the First Minister thinks this is reflected in these figures. And also, while the rate of positive cases is broadly decreasing across age groups, there is a marked increase in children under 14. So I'd like to understand what measures the Scottish Government is taking to address this trend. And finally, will the Government be introducing lateral flow testing for college, further and higher education students as they begin a very slow return to campus so that we avoid the surge in infection caused by last year's chaotic reopening of universities? Thank you. Uh, there will be a gradual return of students uh, to further and higher education. We will use lateral flow testing as appropriate and in a targeted way to support that. Um, the increase in students on campus that I've set out today for the, the early stage from the early part of April will be not exclusively but largely focused on further education uh, because that's where there is a, a greater need if students are to complete their courses to get them with some face-to-face -face learning on uh, campus. In terms of the case numbers, we have seen uh, an increase in the last week. Um, as the Chief Medical Officer said yesterday, there have been a small number of cases of people that we're gathering uh, as part of the football uh, incident last weekend. Uh, we may see more of that, given the incubation of the virus. That will not have uh, fully uh, worked its way through yet. But I think we also need to be really open-eyed about this. And after a year, I think we've probably all learned this. This is a virus. So any time we open up and people start to come together, 
there is greater opportunity for transmission and we have seen schools return. It's not so much a worry about transmission in schools as about the activity that goes around the return of schools. So uh, while I am not, I'm probably one of the last people to be complacent about any increase in cases. If, we, if I cast my mind back two or three weeks, uh, we perhaps worried that the increase in cases we would be seeing after the uh, beginning of the return of schools would be bigger than we are looking at it right now. So we will monitor that very carefully. In terms of uh, younger age groups, the mitigations in schools are really important to try to reduce transmission there as much as possible. This is always going to be a balancing act. Uh, any relaxation of restriction is not neutral. It increases risk of transmission. So we have to get all of the pieces of this as uh, much in balance as we can. We've got a significant additional piece now with vaccination which will help to substitute for some of the lockdown restrictions but the need to navigate this really carefully based on all the experience we've had over the past year remains absolutely essential. We passed a milestone this week with 2 million Scots being vaccinated against coronavirus. It's a significant achievement and the vaccine programme continues to roll out nationwide. Across the channel, the EU vaccine crisis escalated this week. There's been a shortage of vaccine and some countries, including France and Germany, have banned using Oxford AstraZeneca, fearing it can lead to blood clots. The UK regulators say there's no evidence for this. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is threatening to block exports of the Pfizer vaccine earmarked for Britain. Meantime, the EU is proposing a digital Covid passport to allow travel. Alice Baxter reports. It's been a torrid 12 months for the travel industry, one of the major victims of the COVID pandemic. But today, the European Union outlined their proposal for what they're calling a green certificate so that EU citizens can travel between member states. It shows or states whether the person has either been, either been vaccinated or a recent uh, negative test or has recovered from COVID and thus antibodies. Meanwhile, the UK government says that they're drawing up plans for a COVID certificate and will publish a report on April the 12th. We are having uh, debates, uh, discussions about uh, travel. I think that's really important that people can travel safely. Um, but I think what we also have to do is, is be driven by the data. We've got to see uh, how the coronavirus uh, develops. And once we've reopened the economy, I'm sure we'll be looking at uh, other measures to make sure that people are safe and, above all, that the confidence of the public is, uh, is maintained. Where governments have hesitated, perhaps because a certificate or passport throws up ethical questions, discriminating against the young, those awaiting a second jab, those who opt out of vaccinations, business has set the pace. P&O this morning announced a resumption of cruises around the British Isles later this summer on board the Iona, so long as passengers can show they've been vaccinated before boarding. So when people book, they don't need to prove their vaccination, but when they travel, they will need to prove they're vaccinated. Uh, this is moving at pace, as your programme has reported this morning. So we anticipate by the 27th of June, which is our first sailing, there will be a government accredited scheme to prove your vaccination. But at the very least, then, of course, a letter from your GP would suffice.
Saga have already announced similar rules for all of their holidays, while BA have said that they're working on a COVID passport app. After one of the most difficult years in living memory, glimmers of hope. Alice Baxter, BBC News. It's a year since the first Scot died from COVID. On Tuesday, there will be a minute's silence held on the first anniversary of the first national lockdown, the 23rd of March. It'll be an opportunity to honour those who died in the pandemic and those who are still suffering from what's called long COVID. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood. I'm Charles Fletcher. And coming up in this half hour, questions to the First Minister. Officer, I don't deal in conspiracies, I deal in facts. And it is a fact. Having David Davis, a Tory MP, uh, reading out in the House of Commons under the protection of parliamentary privilege uh, his old pal Alex Salmon's conspiracy theories about the sexual harassment allegations uh, against him uh, must be the very epitome of the old boys club. The answer the First Minister was looking for is never. This government and this First Minister have never met their mental health standards. It's not just about words, it's about actions and about commitment and that is what this government demonstrates each and every single day. It's always somebody else's fault, isn't it? It's just a statement of fact. The Scottish Government doesn't directly employ teachers. The employers of teachers are local authorities. And we go back in time as the Scottish Government prepares to nationalise Scotland's railway. So to this week's session of First Minister's Questions. It's the penultimate session of this parliamentary term. We begin with Labour's Anna Sawa on mental health. We know the pandemic has had a devastating impact on the mental health of people across Scotland. Last month, a report from the government showed that more than one in eight of our fellow Scots had reported suicidal thoughts. For people with a pre-existing mental health condition, it was more than one in three. From the last available figures... There were 833 suicide deaths in a single year, and based on early data, that number is tragically expected to rise. During the pandemic, in-person mental health support has been more limited, and the government have encouraged people to use the NHS 24 mental health crisis support line. The First Minister says her government takes the issue of mental health very seriously. So can she tell us, over the course of the pandemic, how many calls to the NHS 24 Mental Health Crisis Hub have gone unanswered. Uh, no, I don't have that figure with me. I'm sure Anna Sarwar is about to give it. If he's not, I'm happy to uh, look into that and provide it. Any call that goes unanswered is not acceptable. I think, uh, having said that, though, uh, people working across our mental health services, including in NHS 24, do an outstanding job in very difficult circumstances, and it's important that we recognise that. Uh, there is no doubt that the impact on mental health of the pandemic has been severe and significant and the obligation on government and on the health service to respond to that in the months and probably in the years to come uh, is also uh, very significant. We published the uh, third annual report on our mental health strategy on the 15th uh, of March uh, that contained updates on the progress towards some 
of the central commitments that we had made. Uh, we have, for example, already achieved uh, the target we set out to invest £60 million to give every secondary school access to counselling services. We are on course to provide counsellors in further and higher education to recruit additional school nurses, uh, to expand uh, the Distress Brief Intervention Programme, uh, to include people under 18 and a whole host of other uh, actions as well, uh, including, of course, the recruitment of additional mental health staff uh, in the community. So there's a lot of work we have to do, but there is a lot of work underway to make sure that we are responding appropriately to people who need mental health support now and in the future. And that's our Presiding officer, the, the First Minister followed the script, but the answer is 24,947. That's almost 25,000 mental health crisis calls during the pandemic where individuals have built up the courage to pick up the phone, call for help and went ignored. Today, Labour is publishing data showing the steady increase in waiting times and abandoned calls to the mental health crisis hub during the course of this pandemic. In March of last year, at the start of this pandemic, 133 calls went unanswered. In the last available month of this year, that number is 5,452, 40 times higher. These are people in crisis. And it's the same story with young people who reach out for help too. One in four children and young people referred to child and adolescent mental health services are still rejected. And for those who are successfully referred, they are supposed to be seen within 18 weeks. So can the First Minister tell us when was the last time she met the 18-week standard? Well, on the uh, missed or unanswered calls, that is not acceptable. But what Anna Sarwar will also recognise is that across a whole range of services, there will also be many more people getting access to services. But it's not acceptable that anybody who reaches out for mental health support does not get that. And we take seriously our responsibility to ensure uh, that that need is met, which is why the range of investments that I have narrated and the many uh, other investments that we are making are so important. Um, on child and adolescent mental health services, we recognised pre-pandemic uh, that waiting times for specialist services are too long, and uh, that is why we had already embarked on a significant programme of investment and reform to make sure that we had more of a focus in early intervention and prevention. So the school counsellors, the counselling uh, advice services in further education, for example, the expansion of distress brief interventions to people under 18. That is all part of that programme of work to make sure that fewer young people uh, need access to specialist services because they're getting services earlier on. Long waits are always unacceptable, uh, but there has been uh, an improvement in CAMS waiting times figures in this quarter. Uh, previous, uh, compared to the previous quarter, which is showing that that work to recover services uh, is underway and is making progress. So we continue to invest in this, we continue to undertake the reforms necessary, and this is a, a key area of work that I think whoever is in positions of responsibility after the election will require to continue to prioritise for some time to come. And I saw officer, the answer the First Minister was looking for is never. This government and this First Minister have never met their mental health standards for children or for adults. Failures have consequences, in this case, devastating ones. Right now, there are 1,500 children and young people in the midst of a pandemic who have been waiting more than a year for support. It's actions, not promises, that save people's lives. 
This issue didn't start with COVID, but it has got worse as a consequence of it. What those 15,000 children need, and what those people who made those 25,000 unanswered calls need, is a parliament focused on a recovery plan for our NHS that includes mental health services. After 14 years of this government, after seven years as First Minister, does the First Minister ever wonder what Scotland could have achieved for those young people if we had focused on what united us and not what divided us? First Minister. I focus, I focus every single day on issues like that. And I do agree with Anastar what it is about actions. Um, and Anas Sarwar is, is perfectly legitimate. He's in opposition uh, questioning a First Minister. Uh, talks about the, the problems. I recognise the challenges we face in mental health, but he didn't outline a few weeks before an election a single positive solution. Uh, unlike me, I have set out the investments we're making. I've set out the reforms we are undertaking uh, to increase preventative early intervention services uh, for young people. Uh, not a single positive solution has come forward uh, from the Labour benches. In fact, just a week or so ago, we put forward a, a budget where, working with other parties, we actually increased the investment for mental health services, and Labour failed to back that budget. So I do agree very much with Anna Sarwar. It's not just about words. It's about actions and about commitment, and that is what this government demonstrates each and every single day. And that will be the programme and the record we put before the people of Scotland in just a few weeks' time. Lib Dem leader Willie Rennie highlights education and, in particular, the hiring of teaching staff. This week I met teachers employed on casual, short-term and zero-hours contracts. The numbers employed in this way have mushroomed in recent years. The group speaks for thousands of teachers who are desperate for some certainty and permanent work. John Swinney met them last July. He promised, I will give you a full and proper response once I have thought through all of the implications. They are still waiting. They saw the government adverts, dreamed of nurturing young minds, but have been stuck in short-term and zero-hours contracts for years, and now they are thinking of leaving the profession. Does the First Minister believe this is treating teachers with respect. First Minister. Uh, no, I don't actually. Um, and I don't see any reason why teachers should be in that position. The government doesn't directly employ teachers. We provide the funding for local authorities to employ teachers. There's been almost five years now of pupil equity funding made available to schools to support uh, the employment of teachers. And of course, as a result of the pandemic in the summer of last year, we provided additional funding, which has since then supported the recruitment of over 1,400 additional teachers in our schools uh, and more than 200 support staff. In January this year, we announced a further £45 million of new funding for education recovery. And again, that funding allows local authorities to deploy more support to schools and to families uh, as this crisis continues. And they are able to use that to recruit further staff should they think that is the most appropriate way of using that funding. So uh, I'm happy to look into the specific uh, cases that Willie Rennie is raising. But given uh, that we have record numbers uh, of teachers uh, right now, uh, then I don't think there is any reason for the situation he outlines. 
Willie Rennie. It's always somebody else's fault, isn't it? This is not a small number of cases. This is thousands and thousands of teachers who were attracted to the profession by this government and John Swinney, who is chuntering in his seat. He shakes his head, but the EIS calls them zero-hours contracts. The group of teachers told John Swinney, this is what they told him, you have turned your back on us. One teacher works in a supermarket to make ends meet, another in a cafe. One said, I have worked hard for six years, but it is impossible to secure a permanent post. Another, I have been made temporary for the third year in a row. So we must create new permanent teaching posts to get rid of this growth in zero-hours contracts and the casualisation of the teaching workforce under this government. Thousands of pupils have missed out on learning due to the pandemic. Will the First Minister, get up now, will the First Minister guarantee a job for these teachers to help the educational recovery? First Minister. There's no reason uh, that any teacher should be in that position. And now Willie Rennie says that is shifting the blame. It's just a statement of fact. The Scottish Government doesn't directly employ teachers. The employers of teachers are local authorities. And any time a minister in this government stands here and suggests we take responsibilities uh, that lie with local government, people like Willie Rennie stand up and accuse us of centralisation. But he talks about more permanent teachers. Since July last year, uh, we have seen recruited more than 1,400 additional teachers and more than 200 support staff. And they should be permanent additional staff. And that is what I am saying the funding is there to support. We've also got a higher number of teachers in our classrooms now than at any time since 2008. Uh, that's the case because we're providing the funding to local authorities to employ more teachers. And I would encourage local authorities to make sure that as they employ teachers, they give permanent jobs to teachers because we're going to need more teachers in our schools for a long time to come as we continue the work of improving education for all. For the Greens, Patrick Harvey turns to the UN Climate Change Conference coming to Glasgow later in the year. Presiding officer, in just eight months' time, the nations of the world will descend on Glasgow to discuss what to do next to tackle the climate breakdown. Our future depends on it. The Greens have successfully pushed the Scottish Government to commit more investment in green recovery. And in Glasgow itself, I was delighted to see Green councillors secure more funds for a green recovery for the city and a legacy for the climate talks. But the climate emergency demands far more of us than this. Fundamentally, it means we need to leave fossil fuels in the ground. This week, even Boris Johnson uh, appeared to accept this, reviewing the licences for the oil and gas industry, including the option of giving no more permissions for new exploration. Scottish Greens have called for this for years, but the First Minister has resisted supporting this vital move to protect our planet. So will the First Minister finally reconsider and join the Greens in calling for an immediate end to new exploration licences in the North Sea, for undeveloped licences to be revoked and for fossil fuel subsidies and tax breaks to be redirected to renewables? First Minister. Well, I agree with the sentiments behind Patrick Harvey's question. Of course, uh, many of these issues are actually reserved to the UK government and uh, these powers don't lie with us, particularly around uh, offshore 
exploration and licensing. But what we have to make sure we achieve uh, in the interests of people whose jobs depend on certain sectors is a just transition. I want to see that transition away from fossil fuels towards renewable sources of energy and Scotland's transition in that respect is well underway. But we need to do that in a way that uh, supports people into new employment and doesn't leave people unemployed and also doesn't substitute our own energy for increased imports, uh, which actually adds to our carbon footprint. So there is no disagreement here about what we need to do, but how we do that matters. It matters to the jobs, the livelihoods and the living standards of many people across Scotland, and in this case, many people across the northeast of Scotland. Uh, there will be no disagreement between me and Patrick Harvey about the moral obligation on our shoulders to get to net zero within the timescale that we set out and the hard actions that are required to achieve that. And again, that is something that has this government's complete focus. Patrick Harvey. Well, a just transition means transition, and it's not compatible with continuing to go looking for ever more fossil fuels when we already know that we have far more available to us in existing reserves than we can ever afford to burn. And the Scottish Government is failing to meet climate targets, especially on areas like transport, where those hard decisions the First Minister is talking about are just not being seen. Last week, we pointed out that the First Minister's Transport Secretary was unwilling to give up his support for climate-busting road expansions, a policy that's barely changed in decades. This week, we learned that another of our ministers, the Rural Economy Secretary, was lobbying the Transport Secretary for even more. And that's hardly surprising from the Rural Economy Secretary when it comes to the environment. That's the same minister who failed to record private meetings with fish farming giants and said he'd deal with their detractors, lobbied for fox hunting on public land, supported the destruction of ancient woodland in the Cairngorms National Park, and told, and told Parliament he'd take no lessons from the Climate Change Committee. So when the First Minister says that we will do all that we can uh, to play our part ahead of COP26, why are members of her Cabinet doing exactly the opposite? First Minister. Well, the, the Minister I suspect uh, Patrick Harvey is talking about has also presided over 80% of all tree planting in the whole of the United Kingdom. Uh, one of the really important things we need to do as part of our climate change ambitions. You know, the transition Patrick Harvey talks about is uh, well underway and in fact in many respects Scotland is leading the way in a global sense. You know, oil and gas, we have uh, already uh, set up the uh, £62 million energy transition fund, the oil and gas uh, Transition Leadership Group is driving progress on decarbonisation. Take transport, for example. We have what I believe is a world-leading ambition to reduce car kilometres by 20% by 2030. That was in our climate change plan. This week we published our Housing 2040 strategy and the Heat and Buildings strategy alongside plans to invest £1.6 billion over the next five years to transform how we heat our homes and buildings. So these are actions we are taking right now. Um, that's why so many other countries across the world are actually looking to Scotland for leadership because they recognise the leadership Scotland is showing. Now, as we go further down this road to 2030 and then to 2045, those decisions get much harder. They get much more challenging. And that's when we see often, not Patrick Harvey, I hasten to add, but other opposition parties shy away from these difficult decisions. So as we go into a new parliament, there are big things 
that we have to confront and face up to. But the leadership that Scotland is already showing here is something that should give all of us pride as we prepare for COP in November. The Conservative group leader at Holyrood, Ruth Davidson, accused the First Minister and her government of a cover-up over Alex Hammond. The First Minister dismissed the charge. This week we heard more allegations about the scandal engulfing Nicola Sturgeon's government. Yesterday at her press conference, the First Minister refused to address the substance but claimed to refute the allegations. Now, it's been a while since I was a journalist, but back then refute meant to prove a statement wrong, and I don't think its meaning has changed since then. So I'm going to ask the same question that the journalist asked yesterday, which the First Minister refused to answer, and maybe she can properly refute it now. It has been alleged that a legal document had been deliberately withdrawn, in other words suppressed, from being handed over to a court by government officials. Is that something that the First Minister knows happened, and is that not a summary dismissal offence? First Minister. Um, it didn't happen, and I'll come back to that point in a minute. I'm actually quite astounded that Ruth Davidson hasn't seen uh, the position that has now been uh, narrated about that. But can I say, first of all, Presiding Officer, uh, that having David Davis, a Tory MP, uh, reading out in the House of Commons under the protection of parliamentary privilege uh, his old pal Alex Salmon's conspiracy theories about the sexual harassment allegations uh, against him uh, must be the very epitome Pardon of the old boys club. Uh, I have to say, holding this, government, holding this government to account is vital, but anyone who chooses to cheer that on should not pretend to have the interests of the women concerned at heart. Now, on to, on to the specific question about the withheld document. That claim, as the government actually confirmed yesterday, is just factually inaccurate. Uh, David, Davis, uh, David Davis uh, claimed that a document was withheld. In fact, once we tracked down exactly what document was uh, being talked about, what we discovered was that document was not withheld. That document was handed over to the court on the 21st of November 2018. Production number 7.79. So there's the answer to Ruth Davidson's question. And I would just end, presiding officer, by saying this. Parliamentary privilege might confer all sorts of protection. Unfortunately for Mr Davis, it doesn't turn falsehood into fact. Ruth Davidson. Officer, I don't deal in conspiracies, I deal in facts, and it is a fact. It is a fact that her own lawyers said it was unexplained and frankly inexplicable that information had been kept from them. And while that's ground we've tread before, there is something that she hasn't been asked about, because it was only released to the Parliamentary Committee inquiry on Monday. A document dated the 4th of November, which hasn't been reported yet, and could have been released the whole time, and said, sneaked out in the dog days of the inquiry's time. We don't know who the note's author is, because that's redacted, but we know it was sent to the very top of government, and discusses whether officials really do have to comply with their duty of candour. So let me quote directly from it. They felt it better, more credible, less shifty-looking, if we proceed as proposed. And it goes on. It will probably all end up being out there anyway, and better to face it transparently than having this dragged out reluctantly and portrayed as a failed attempt at a cover-up. First Minister, why did the government go ahead with the attempt at the cover-up anyway? First Minister. 
I, I think everybody watching this will have noticed just how quickly Ruth Davidson moved on yeah. from the question she yeah. asked at the first uh, occasion of asking, because she stood up and suggested, as David Davis did in the House of Commons earlier this week, that a document had been withheld. And then when I pointed out to her that that was factually inaccurate, including given her the production number of the document as it was handed over to the court on the 21st of November 2018, she's got the nerve to stand up here and say she deals in facts. I think people will see for themselves that that couldn't be further from the truth. And actually what she has just quoted, uh, what that actually means is council saying to government, uh, here's things we should hand over and we should hand them over. I think actually it was amend pleadings, uh, although I'll be corrected if I'm wrong uh, on that, rather than have any suggestion that we're trying to cover up. So what did we do? We amended the pleadings. All of this is out there, of course, uh, for people to see, because the thing is, people don't have to take Ruth Davidson's word uh, for these things anymore. They don't have to take the word of the old boys club in the House of Commons anymore. They can go on to the website of the Scottish Government, the committee of this parliament, and read all this for themselves. And then they can make up their own minds. But the fact of the matter is, David Davis made serious, specific allegations in the House of Commons this week, eh, and they have completely fallen apart. And I actually think eh, that should be something he is apologising for. He's been tweeting this morning where he's no longer even eh, trying to defend the specific allegations, he's just shifting the goalposts. Shifty is definitely a word I would use today, but I would use it in relation to David Davis and Ruth Davidson. Ruth Davidson. So the First Minister says there's no cover-up, but six Weeks after the note that I read out, her own lawyers said they hadn't complied with what the court told them to do. And still, we know that the First Minister attended a meeting on the 13th of November 2018 with legal counsel, and all records of that meeting have either vanished or been destroyed. It is beyond anyone's imagination that no notes were taken when the First Minister, her Chief of Staff, the Permanent Secretary and Queen's Counsel met. Is Nicola Sturgeon seriously trying to tell us this isn't a cover-up when our own officials warned six weeks before key documents were finally dragged out of them that it would look like a failed attempt at a cover-up, when our own lawyers under her instruction made false statements before a judge because a key email was withheld despite emails around it in the same chain being disclosed, and when all of this would have stayed secret from the inquiry investigating it but for the threat of John Swinney losing his job. First Minister. You know, Ruth Davidson gets more and more desperate on this issue every single week that passes. As one conspiracy theory after another is demolished and falls away, she just dredges the bottom of the barrel. The fact of the matter is here, this government did make a serious mistake. I have uh, said that on a number of occasions. It's a serious mistake. Uh, I regret deeply. I do think a point that shouldn't be lost, though, is this. It's a mistake that was made in the course of the government trying to do the right thing. You know, in the world of the old boys club, that mistake would never have been made because the allegations would never have been investigated. They would have been swept under the carpet instead. That old boys club that Ruth Davidson is soon going to see a lot closer uh, when she joins the House of Lords in just a few weeks' time. The fact of the matter is, scrutiny of this government on all of these things is vital and important. And as I said, people can go and read the documentation 
for themselves. You know, but every time that crosses over into buying into Alex Salmond's conspiracy theories, politicians have a, a choice to make there and they're entitled to choose to do that, but they shouldn't pretend in doing that that they are standing up for the women at the heart of this issue. Uh, these women were let down. I've apologised for that and I am determined to learn the lessons of it and to make sure this government learns the lessons of it. Now we are going back to the future with Scotland's railway. The Scottish Government is to nationalise it, cutting short the contract it has with the Dutch company Abellio. The move has been welcomed by unions and Scottish Labour. Here's Transport Secretary Michael Matheson. The rail industry has faced unprecedented challenge through the COVID-19 pandemic. And I again offer my thanks to rail workers across our country for their efforts. As we look to a period of necessary and overdue reform, it's my duty to secure continued operations of stable and efficient rail services within the existing legislative framework. In taking the approach I have announced today, we will secure stable delivery of rail services within public hands and under Scottish Government control, providing certainty for passengers and rail staff. Presiding officer, I firmly believe this approach will best serve the interests of passengers and taxpayers in the future. And still on transport, if you rely on the A83, rest and be thankful, you know it's been beset with problems seemingly magnified over the past 10 years. Donald Cameron, Conservative, Highlands and Islands, raised the issue at FMQs this week. Thank you. Uh, since last summer, the closure of the A83 at the Rest and Be Thankful Pass has caused misery for residents of Argyll who use this lifeline route with months of disruption. A newly formed campaign group of 1,000 local businesses have expressed their exasperation that Transport Scotland has suggested a replacement route may take 10 years to fulfil. So can the First Minister finally today commit to a firm date for completing a permanent solution along the existing A83 corridor in light of the ongoing frustration and anger felt by so many communities affected by this closure? First Minister. Well, we want to make sure this is uh, resolved definitively as soon as possible. Uh, that's why we committed to progress a long-term solution uh, to the landslide risk at the rest and be thankful. And today, actually, we've announced a preferred corridor for a long-term solution, uh, along with potential route options within that corridor for consultation. And, of course, the importance of consultation um, is one of the reasons why I can't give a, a precise timescale uh, right now. Uh, we've got to complete the necessary statutory processes to guarantee delivery of uh, the scheme, but we absolutely recognise the importance of this uh, to people across Argyll and Butte and there is a determination. In fact, Mike Russell um, as a, a constituency member uh, affected, uh, whose constituents are affected here, um, has been a real champion for this uh, within government and uh, we will continue uh, to make sure we take this forward with all due priority. Parliament goes into pre-election recess next week ahead of the poll on Thursday the 6th of May. The week in Holyrood continues throughout the recess period. I'm planning some special editions including one with your chance to ask the party leaders a question. If you want to pose a question please send it to me by email along with your name and where you live not your address just simply the town or area. The email address to send to is holyroodleaders at gmail.com 